Well, good morning. Awkward transition as we move the table up here. Hopefully not too far to the front because I might fall off. I'm a very clumsy person. It's okay. Well, 2020 has been an absolute crazy year. And I might have started this off with the most obvious statement of all time. This year has most evidently been uh, not horrific, but the word I'm going to use is just crazy. And for me, the craziest aspect of this year was a few months ago when we were in quarantine. And I don't know about you, but I just really found out about myself that I am not built for quarantine. Just this idea of being alone, and yes, I had my family, but after a certain amount of time, hearing the same dad jokes that my dad's been giving me since I was 10, they just got old. And so through quarantine, this is such a first world issue, but through quarantine, I became bored, for lack of a better word. I just got bored. Like, we're just doing the same thing over and over and can't go anywhere. And so I did what any respectable college student does when they were bored. And I started watching a lot of YouTube over quarantine. And YouTube, what a blessing that YouTube is. And if you know anything about me, you know that I love sports. And so as I was watching YouTube, things I like to watch are like sports documentaries. And I like to watch highlights of some old games. And I happened across in YouTube, in the YouTube realm when I was looking at videos, I happened across the 2012 BCS National Championship game. And if you remember this game, this was a game between Alabama and Notre Dame. These are two powerhouse schools, and this was a big deal. Every national championship, of course, is a big deal. Everyone hypes it up. But for, for some reason, this was like the clash of the Titans. Like, this is the game of the century. Uh, Notre Dame was undefeated. Alabama had one loss. And they go into this game, lots of hype. It's supposed to be a really tight affair. And uh, <laughs> Alabama gets the ball first, and they score a touchdown. And then they get the, get the ball back, and they score another touchdown. And then they get the ball back and they score another touchdown. And the game ends 42 to 7. It's an absolute molly whopping. Like, it's not even close. It might as well have been 100 to 0. It was that not competitive of a game. And so at the end of this game, it's evident Alabama is on a whole nother level to every other team in college football. And after the game, they're celebrating, and a reporter comes up to Nick Saban. And they say, hey, hey, Mr. Saban, you know, your team is obviously far better than everyone else. You know, what are you going to do now? You know, what's the process of celebration? And what Nick Saban says really has stuck out to me, and this is what he says. He says, at our school in Alabama, we have a 24-hour celebration period, and then it's back to work. And, like, for me, that blows my mind. Like, the next football game isn't for another eight or nine months, and the guys are already thinking about what can we do to improve, right? Like, if I just won a national championship game as the head coach, I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to take a three-week vacation with my family. We're going to go to Hawaii. We're going to tour the Swiss Alps. We're going to do something fun, right? This guy is obsessed with success and being successful at what he does. And so what do we see from Saban? We say that, we see through Saban that though the next game is months away, he recognized that if his team were to stop improving, they wouldn't be ready once the rubber met the road, which was in their next game eight months away. And so we see that through Saban, he understands that a person cannot sustain progress if they're not growing, if there's not improvement that's happening. And I believe that today in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we're going to see three things. We're going to see first how God supplies the needs of his children, which enables us to strive to live godly lives. And then two, we're going to see how the reaction to God's grace and work causes us to grow in certain attributes. And then three, we're going to see why we will never stop growing as a believer here on this earth. And so if you're taking notes and you, you want to know the title, the, the sermon, or I guess you'd call it the topic for today, is grow. Uh, that is what we are, it is titled. 
But before we dive into God's word, uh, let's pray really quick. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we thank you uh, for who you are. We thank you for the truths that we just sang and proclaimed uh, through song, God. Uh, you are good, and we thank you, and we love you. God, I ask that as we open your word and as we, as we read that you would illuminate in our minds what it is that you would have us to receive. Uh, God, I just ask that you would work and speak through this time through your word. Uh, Lord, I need you, I thank you, and I love you. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. In order, to under, in order for us to understand some things about Second Peter, we need, we need to know three things. We need to know why the book was written, we need to know who the author is, and we need to know who it was written to. And so the second two are going to be answered in the actual passage, but we need to know what the purpose of Second Peter is. And so this is the purpose. The author writes Second Peter to encourage believers to live a life that is pleasing to God, while the writer also has to combat the false teaching of false teachers who are basically saying, you Christians have a, a knowledge of God that is not true. You need to follow our knowledge rather than the knowledge that you have. And so these are false teachers who are trying to draw Christians away from the true knowledge of God. And so basically encouraging godliness and then combating false teachers is the purpose of this book. And so we begin in verse 1. It says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So right here, we're introduced to who our author is. Your version might say Simon Peter. And it's pretty clear that it is the apostle of Jesus Christ who maybe he hasn't written these words directly in terms of his handwriting, but he is at least uh, saying this and someone else is writing this down for him. And so these are the words of Simon Peter, and he recognizes the fact that he is a servant, which recognize, he recognizes his humble stature before God. And this is what he says. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we got to remember the significance that comes with apostle apostleship, right? Peter was in the inner circle of Jesus' closest uh, followers, right? You know, James, Peter, John. These guys were tight with Jesus. They got to pick his brain. They got to be sharpened by him. Uh, they got to be confronted with some areas that they needed growth in, right? And so Jesus picked their brain, and then they were able to conform under Jesus um, in direct relationship. And so what is Peter's reminding uh, us that he is an apostle mean for us today? It means that Peter has authority to tell early church Christians and us how we should live our lives. And so we continue, and it says, to those who have obtained a faith. Now, let's stop right there. Who are those? We're immediately met by who our recipients of this letter are. Those people are Gentile Christians. And if we know anything about these early times, uh, the, one of the biggest theological issues of the early church is what do we do with these Gentiles, right? We understand that Jews can come into faith with Christ, but where did the Gentiles stand in relation to the kingdom of God? And so... Uh, this is one of Peter's final letters, if not his last work before he is about to die. And we see that Peter makes a declaration or a proclamation right here in one of his last works. He says, he says this, To those Gentiles who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. What Peter makes a very clear statement right here. If you are a follower of Christ, there is no second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. And he makes it really clear. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your language is. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. If you obtain the faith of Christ, then you are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. You have obtained a faith of equal standing with that of himself, Peter. And what is it that qualifies that? It says, uh, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What we see right here is that the qualifying factor of our justification is not our works, it's not our culture, it's not our skin color. The qualifying factor of our justification being made right before God is only the righteousness of Christ. 
And so Peter makes that very clear right there. And in verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And it's really easy to skip over verses like these. And I'll confess, I'm, I'll sometimes read the ends of these like first couple of verses. And I'm like, all right, let's get to the meat of the passage. But oftentimes, these verses have such important truths for our faith. And so let's read it, and it says, May grace and peace, stop right there. Grace and peace is definitely something that we would love to have in our lives, right? Like, especially this year, uh, but in all aspects of our lives, we would all like grace and peace, right? So how does Peter say one attains grace and peace? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge. The word knowledge right here is, refer- uh, is inferring a relationship knowledge. So you will receive grace and peace when you have a re- relationship with who? With God and of Jesus our Lord. Really quick, it's in the text, so we've got to touch on it. Look at the end of verse 1. It says, you have a faith of equal standing by the righteousness of who? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And at the in this verse 2, he says, you receive grace and peace through the relationship of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's statements like these that pointed the early church to, to the truth of the Trinity. It's the fact that we believe in one God, but he exists in three persons. It's very clear. Peter, in the end of verse 1, says Jesus is both God and Savior. And at the end of verse 2, he says that in order to receive grace and peace, you must have a relationship with God the Father and with Christ the Son, Jesus. And so we continue on, and in verse 3 through 4, we're just going to read all this really quick. So it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, let's be clear. There's about 10 weeks of sermon series just in these two verses, and I'm going to attempt to explain them in four minutes. And so I'm going to do my best is what I'm saying. And so, uh, but it is so truthful, it is so good, and so I I ask you uh, to bear with me as we go through these two verses, because they are so amazing. In verse 3 it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And now we got to stop and think about, what does it mean when God grants something? Like, if God is going to freely and willingly give something to someone, would it make sense for us as people to joyfully receive that? Like, think about eternal life. God has granted eternal life to people. It would make sense, right? It would just, it's the sensible thing to do, to receive that with joyfulness and gratitude. And what is he saying here? He said, his divine power has granted to us to what? All things that pertain to life and godliness. Just like salvation, God has granted us the ability to strive to live godly lives. And the question is, how has he done this? Like, in, in what way has he done this? And that is what the rest of of verse, verses 3 and 4 are trying to explain. And so this is how it starts off. It starts off with the fact that God's power initiates something. In verse 3 it says, His divine power. None of us within our own nature strive for godliness. It's not within us. And we're going to see that in the end of verse 4. God's power has to initiate something. And what is it that God's power initiates? You see it in, in the rest of verse 3. It says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who God called us to his own glory and excellence. excellence. So God's power initiates, and then it is through the knowledge, through relationship, and the understanding of Jesus who calls, another way to say calls is that he draws us to himself. 
He draws us to himself. And what is he drawing us to? He's drawing us to his glory and excellence. And, and think about the glory and excellence of Christ, right? It is vast. It is amazing. It is wonderful. And so Peter's saying God's, God's power initiates. It calls us to the glory and excellence of Christ. It draws us to that. And then what happens? By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So what does this mean? What this means is that, um, I mean, we just think about it, is the words of God are true, right? And if we're going to put our faith and trust and hope in the glory and excellence of who Jesus is, then you can bet that we can put our faith and trust and hope in what he says, right? And so we can trust the promises of God if we're trusting in Christ as well. And so the question then becomes, well, what are these promises that we're trusting in? And so we continue on. It says, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In order to understand what these promises are, we have to look at the, the other part of verse 4. It says, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It is true that the world is sinful. It is true that the world is fallen. But let me be clear, the main source of sin and corruption in my own life is my own sinful desire. Right? And so, because it is my own sinful desire, what does that do? What does sin and desire do? It promises us things, right? That contrast the promises of God. And so what sin does is it says, do this and you will receive this, right? And then God says, live how I have called you to live and you will receive this. And so what is happening here is the promises of God, they're not specific promises, they're just highlighted in, in the idea that God has promised us this and our sinful desire promises this, right? And uh, upon our own desire, we're going to choose sin every time. But something has to happen in the middle for us to be able to see our sinful desire and to choose the ways of God. And they're met by the middle of verse 4, and it says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, it's really easy to read something like this and think that this is some sort of mystical experience, right? Like I'm stepping into godliness or I'm receiving aspects of God. What it's really saying is that when we're confronted with the promises of God and we're confronted with the promises of our own sinful desire, when, we, when God initiates, when God calls us and draws us to the excellence of his Son, and when we trust those promises, it is so clear that the ways of God are so much better than the ways of this world that it enables us to wear a divine nature that chooses the ways of God above the ways of our own sinful desire. And so why is Peter saying all this? This is why he's saying all this. Because his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Christ has done it all. He has enabled us. God is the enabler who has enabled us to strive to live godly lives. And so what does this mean for us. We continue in verse 5. It says, for this reason. What reason? Because God has granted all things that pertain to life and godliness. Make every effort. Don't you think Peter's a little serious when he says this? He says, make every effort. He's talking about pursuing this with zeal. This is a daily uh, pursuit, right? He says, make every effort to do what? To supplement your faith. What does it mean to supplement? It means to add to or in other words, it means to grow in your faith. Make every effort to grow your faith with what? He starts off with virtue. What does virtue mean? Virtue means excellence. Virtue means goodness. But one definition that I really like of virtue is that it means the proper use of something, right? And so you think of like a Swiss Army knife. The Swiss Army knife 
It has many uses, but there's a proper use for the Swiss Army knife. If you're trying to use the Swiss Army knife to fix your flat tire, to bake a cake, it's not going to be very useful, right? It might be able to fix your flat tire. Swiss Army knives are amazing. Um, but you're not going to be able to bake a cake with a Swiss Army Well, Swiss Army knives also have spoons. So anyway, you get what I'm saying. There are things with a specific purpose, and they're meant to fulfill that purpose. And so the question is, what is our virtue as believers? The virtue of a believer, the proper use of a believer, is to bring glory to God and to worship him, to live a life of good worship and reflecting his glory back towards him. And so, uh, virtue, and then we continue, and virtue with knowledge. What does this mean? This is the ability to understand God's stance on what is good and what is bad. And so the early church Christians had to rely on the things of the apostles, what they were saying, the letters they were giving them. And we have these letters in God's word. And so we have been blessed by having God's word to understand where God stands on what is evil and what is good according to his will and his purposes. And then we increase knowledge with what? And knowledge with self-control. What is self-control referring to? God has created us as people of passion, and this is good. Passion is not a bad thing. God has created us this way. But the issue is when we allow our passions to control us that we begin to step in sin. And so what is Peter saying? He's saying control your passion. A believer, some, we need to add and grow in our control uh, of ourselves and our passions. And then he continues, and he says, in self-control with steadfastness. The fact of the matter is, um, true faith endures. True faith endures the test of time. This is the idea of um, perseverance, being able to persevere to the end. And then he continues, and he says, steadfastness with what? With godliness. What is this referring to? It's referring to a life of good worship. And then we continue, in godliness with brotherly love. We're almost done. In godliness with brotherly love. What is Peter saying that we need to add to our faith? We need to grow in. We need to grow in our love for the, for the body of believers. We need to grow in our love for Christ church. When it says brotherly love, it's not saying we should love everyone like they're brothers, even though it would be good to love everyone um, as if they were a family. What it's saying is we should have a love for the church of God. We should have a love for each other as fellow believers, and we should exemplify that in action. And then finally, Peter ends this list with the pinnacle, the crown of all these virtues, and that is love. And the thing about love is when we look at it in, in our own culture, it doesn't really fit the mold of how God loves, right? Like, you know, our culture is always saying, you know, we just need love and love's gonna fix everything, right? If you just vote for the loving candidate, that'll fix all of our problems, right? Love will win if we just simply choose love. But the, the issue with this is our understanding of love typically, or at least the culture's understanding of love, is not the idea of love that is of who God is, right? Love is not a feeling. Love does not feel, it acts. And what is the main way that God has acted? God, because God is love, he has acted, and on our behalf, he has sent his son to die for us. And so God is love, and so what is Peter calling believers to be? He's saying not to just show love, not to just feel love, but he is calling us to step into and to be love as God is love. And so, in verse 8, it says this, for if these qualities are yours, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it would be nice if it said that. It would be nice to know that if all we had to do in our Christian life is just attain these things, then we'd be good. Like, I would finally be able to, like, rest. I'd finally be able to relax. I'm like, okay, I finally got these six or seven things down. Like, now I can, now I can relax. Now I can coast. 
But that's not what the verse said. I left out two really important words when I read that. It said this. Eight. Where is it? There it is. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying is, if by the grace of God you are able to attain these attributes, your spiritual growth does not end there. There is still room for growth. There is still room to progress in your, in your faith. And the way I think about this is I think of like a basketball star, right? Like think about LeBron James when he's in high school. The man literally has all the attributes he needs to be successful at that time, right? He has uh, long arms, he has height, he has athleticism, he has strength, he has speed, he's got like a 55-inch vertical leap. Like the man is, he's built and he's been given all that he needs to be able to be successful. But what would happen if LeBron James never actually grew and honed in that skill? What if he never practiced his jump shot? What if he never practiced free throws? He wouldn't be equipped for what he has to do later, which is to play the game, right? And so what Peter is saying is, if by God's grace you attain these qualities, grow some more. And this is what he says. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, what happens? They keep you from being ineffective or useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is this saying? This is when the context of the passage comes into play right here, and Peter is combating the false teachers of the day. And so what the false teachers were doing is they claimed to have the knowledge of God. They claimed to have the things that verses 3 through 4 three through four do, right? They claim to be met by God's grace. They claim to be called by God, and they claim to be people who are going to pursue after God. But then what was happening? They had no fruit to show for it because they weren't growing in these qualities. In Matthew 7, Jesus is very clear. What does he do to the vine or the branch that doesn't produce fruit? He casts it away. He cuts it off. He removes it. And so that is what these false teachers are doing. And so what is the warning for us as believers? Peter's saying, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, that won't happen. And so what is the command? The command is to grow. In verse 9, it says this, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. And so in order to understand verse 9, we actually have to flip-flop two words. Our our English text has actually flipped two words. Uh, You need to flip-flop. I love that word, flip-flop. Flip-flop the words nearsighted and blind. The way this verse actually reads is for whoever lacks these qualities is so blind that he is nearsighted, having forgot that he was cleansed from his sin. What does that mean? Like, how can, if you're blind, then you're, you're, you're not going to be nearsighted because you're blind. And what this verse is actually referring to is not actual blindness and that someone cannot see. What it's actually referring to is blind in the sense that someone is willfully shutting their eyes to the truth. And so what he's saying is, for whoever lacks these qualities, if you neglect to grow in your walk with Christ, you are like someone who is willfully shutting your eyes to the truth, and thus you are nearsighted. What does that mean? You're concerned with only the things of this present world. You're concerned with only the desire, the things that affect you right here and right now. And what Peter's calling us to is to have a bigger vision, to have a bigger picture of what is happening. He said, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. Guys, these qualities only happen out of of an overflow of gratitude from what God has done in verses 3 through 4. And so 
it, it doesn't make sense that a believer would neglect to grow because the greatest thing that's ever happened to us in our lives is the fact that God has saved us, is the fact that he has called us in our sin and in our grossness. And so because of that, we're going to have that in mind. We're going to remember of what God has called us from, what he has saved us from. And because of that, out of the gratitude of his mercy, we're going to seek to grow. And so in verse 10, it says this. It says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Again, it's going back to the idea of make every effort. Peter is really, he's saying, please, please do this. Be diligent to do what? To confirm your calling and election. Now, what is Peter saying here? Is he saying that if you're not growing for a certain season that you're no longer a believer? Peter's not saying that at all. What Peter is saying is this. He is again addressing the false teachers. See, if, if you are someone who claims to have been met by the knowledge of God, but you completely refuse to grow in any way, what you're doing is you're making a mockery of what Christ has done on the cross. And Peter is saying your election is not sure if that is what you're doing. So what is he calling believers to do? Peter wants believers to show the world, to show themselves, and to show the Lord that their calling is sure, that I have seen the grace and the, and the goodness and the glory of Christ, and because of that, I can be confronted with the things of God, and I can be confronted with the things of this world, and I can say God is most definitely better, and we can pursue, pursue those things which do what? Which, pers- which produce fruit, which show the world that we are in pursuit of Christ. And so with that, the confirming of your calling and election comes two promises. It says, for if you practice these qualities, one, you will never fall. And again, this goes back to the idea that Peter is not telling us that we are not going to sin if we are seeking to grow in our faith. That's not what Peter is referring to. He is referring to a falling away. Think back in Matthew 7 when Jesus is casting away the barren branches, right? It is the idea of falling away completely. The fact of the matter is we might take a step back in our growth, but the expectation is that we would still seek to grow and that God would use that and that he would still produce fruit in our lives. And so that is the first promise is that we will not fall away. And this is the second promise. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, when it says uh, eternal kingdom, it's referring to the eternal rulership of Jesus. And what I love about this, it says, it says in, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you. It doesn't say that we're providing anything for, for ourselves. It says that it, we are being richly provided. Who is the one providing? It is the grace of God that initiates, that calls, that promises us things, and that we can put our faith and trust in the promises of God And it is through that that he has provided us an entrance into the eternal rulership of Jesus. And so the question is, what does this mean for us today? In verses 3 through 4, we see the mercy of God and how he has granted to us all things that pertain uh, to godliness. He has granted us the ability to strive to live godly lives. In verses 5 through 7, we see how God calls us to add to our faith these attributes. He calls us to grow. And in verse 8, Peter shows that even if you somehow, by the grace of God, achieve all of these qualities, the believer must still grow in those qualities. So what is Peter saying? He's saying that our spiritual growth will not find its completeness here on earth. The fact of the matter is, unless Christ returns, or if we go and be with him early, through death, our spiritual journey is not going to end. And so we should not act as people who have made it. 
We should act as people who are intent, who are making every effort, who are zealous to grow spiritually in our walk. So what does believers, uh, so what does Peter tell believers to do? He tells them to grow. The thing I love about growth is it's not one size fits all, right? We're all individual, different human beings, and growth for one person might look completely different for the growth of another, and the fact of the matter is God knows that, right? He doesn't have, like, one type of oil to fix the engine. He has all the oils that would be needed to fix any engine because he's the one who created it. And so God indeed calls us to growth, but thankfully that growth, growth often looks different for each individual. You know, you might be a person who's really solid in one of those areas. Going back and looking, you might be someone who's really solid in knowledge, right? But then you're struggling in a lot of those other areas. What would Peter say to you via this passage? He would say to grow. Perhaps you're someone who's really sharp in a lot of those areas. What would Peter say to you? He would say to grow. See, see, this is my question for us as a believer. This is, this is the challenge. Are you growing? How are you growing? What methods, what ways are you using to grow in your faith? Do you have ways to pro- progress in your faith? What parameters have you put in your life to ensure that you continue to grow? See, I think there are two application points for today for us. What, what are two things that we as believers can do? What are two action steps that we can take? The first is this. We as believers need to pray that God would reveal areas of our life that we need growth in. Oftentimes, uh, we have a lot of blind spots. Oftentimes, we don't see the areas that we need growth in, and we need God to reveal to us through his word what those areas are, right? And so we need to pray that God would reveal those areas to us. And then in two, the second point that we need to go and do today um, is get involved with a group of believers to help you see your blind spots and to hold you accountable to spiritual growth. Um, If quarantine has taught us anything besides how bored we can sometimes be, it has definitely taught me that we are meant for, for community, right? And we are meant to do this life together and I don't know about you, but I, I was looking back on my spiritual growth as a believer over quarantine, and just to be honest, it struggled at times because I didn't have guys like Brett, who I used to meet with every single week. He, Brett, would, Brett and I would meet, and he'd be like, Jacob, what are you reading in the Word? You know, how are you growing right now in your faith? What's God teaching you? It was that iron sharpening iron that I needed that I lost once we went to quarantine. And so I believe that God calls us to do this growing together. And the fact of the matter is, is we have a campus, we have a ministry staff that is intent on enabling us as students to do that. And so what are they doing? Going forward uh, within the next semester, uh, this school, the campus ministry staff, is going to be launching small groups for people who are intent on growing in their faith. And the idea is, uh, oftentimes, and I know at least in my beginning time here at North Greenville, I fell through the cracks. Like, there was no one to come alongside me to help me grow, to help me see the areas that I was blind in. But what the campus ministry staff is doing is they have seen that, and they are now going to enable people like who are like me, who are falling through the cracks, to be seen and to be helped in their spiritual growth. And so what I would say to you as an action step is look out for those small groups and absolutely get involved in those small groups because we have amazing guys and girls who are going to be leading those who want to do— the thing is we all want to do the same thing together. We all want to grow and be more like Jesus. The Christian life isn't about becoming a better person. It's about about being conformed to the image of Christ. And so we're all doing that together. And I believe that is when it is best uh, for spiritual growth.
And then I have a challenge for you if you're a non-believer. I want you to remember what has enabled believers to pursue godliness. What has enabled believers to pursue growth? It is God's initiating power which draws and calls people to the glory and goodness of Christ so that we can see and believe the promises of God so that our desires can change from the things of this world to the things of God. This passage is only enabled, the call to grow in godliness and the call to grow in our faith is only enabled through saving faith in Jesus. It is only enabled by the power of Christ. And if you are trying to add these things to yourself, maybe you see something like love, and you're like, I would love to add love to myself. The fact of the matter is, if you have not been met by the glove, the love, not the glove, the love and the glory of Christ, you are not going to be able to live out love as you so desire to. It's not possible. And so this is what I would say. If you're trying to add to yourself these things without the power of Jesus, then you are trying in vain. In order for a person to grow, there must be a beginning of growth. And that beginning must start with the recognition that we are separated from God because of our sin. And it is because of that sin that we deserve to be eternally separated from God. But the good news is, is God has not left us where we deserve to be. God sent his son Jesus to die in our place so that we can experience his glory and goodness mentioned in verse 3. And once we experience his glory and goodness, we can see his promises and we can choose the promises of God over the promises of our sinful desire. So what am I asking you to do if you're a non-believer? I'm asking you to see what Christ has done, to see what he has done, to see how great and glorious he is as he calls and draws you near to himself. And I would ask you to find someone on this campus that you can talk to about what a saving faith in Christ looks like. I know Brett's always around. There's amazing people on this campus. I'm sure any of your professors would talk to you about what does, what does growing look like and what is the actual first step of what growth would be for me. And so I would ask you to do that. And I, I, to, to put it simply, a life of following Christ is absolutely worth it. And so let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your apostle Peter and you're inspiring him to write this word. God, I pray that we would be people of growth. I pray that we would not people, be people who become complacent with where we're at. God, the fact of the matter is, is our sanctification will not be complete until we come to be with you. And so, God, I ask that you would reveal to us areas in our lives that we need to grow in spiritually. And God, I pray that you would help us to reach out to others so that they can help us see the blind spots in our lives, so that they can help hold us accountable, Lord. And then, God, I ask for the non-believer who, who in a way, is kind of on the outside looking into, what does this growth look like? What does godliness look like? What, what is all this about, God? I just ask that you would reveal yourself uh, to those who, who do not know you, who do not have a relationship with you, God, and that you would call them, Lord, and that they would see your glory and goodness, which is so great and is so wonderful, and is so majestic, God, that they would see that and that they would choose to follow you over their own sinful desire. God, we love you, we thank you, and it is in the name of Jesus that I pray.